You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is an author, journalist, and financial hacker exploring the intersections between money systems, finance, and digital technology. He is also a senior fellow of the Finance Innovation Lab, an associate at the Institute of Social Banking, and an advisory group member of the Brixton Pound Local Currency. His latest book is titled Cloud Money, Cash, Cards, Crypto, and the War for Our Wallets. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Brett Scott. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for getting me on. Well, firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Yeah, sure. I'm from South Africa originally, and uh, but then I, at some point, moved to the UK and went to go work in the financial sector uh, in the midst of the financial crisis. So I was actually working in exotic derivative contracts or swap contracts uh, during the sort of yeah the, in the midst of you know, during the financial crisis. So I have some experience of the world of high finance, uh, but then I put out a book in 2013 called The Heretic's Guide to Global Finance, Hacking the Future of Money. And that was basically a kind of, I'll just say a, a kind of a guide to finance for people in civil society, people who weren't in the financial sector, but who had a who had critiques of it, you know, and who wanted to know what they could do about it. So The Heretic's Guide to Global Finance is very much a kind of uh, let's say like an activisty book on how to reform the financial system. Um, but at, at that time that the Heretics Guide came out, um, also, you know, there were lots of these sort of fintech companies who were starting to rise. And this was around, yeah, 2013, 2014. And uh, yeah, many of them kind of perceived themselves to also be sort of challenging finance in various ways. So I ended up getting drawn quite a lot into the sort of fintech world and also since the kind of cryptocurrency world. So, um, yeah, so I started to like explore those types of um, scenes. And yeah, it's kind of culminated in my my recent recent book, Cloud Money, which is looking at this kind of fusion between big tech and big finance and making a critique of that. But yeah, over the years, I've done lots of different campaigns around finance and also worked on lots of alternative projects, sort of alternative currencies and alternative um, models of finance, we say. If you are a professional looking at the European startup scene, Germany is a place you cannot miss. Fortunately for you, there is StartupRad.eo, the authority on German startups. This English-only podcast brings you fresh interviews each week. Most likely, you have never heard or read anything on these startups before in English, but you will in the future. Be ahead of the curve and subscribe to StartupRad.eo podcast or check for the StartupRad.eo internet radio station. Check your Alexa for the StartupRad.eo skill as well. Okay, um, so your latest book is titled Cloud Money, Cash, Cards, Crypto, and the War for Our Wallets. Um, in it, you discuss the, the fusion of big finance and big tech. So I wanted to start off by asking you to tell us how, the, how and why this fusion came about and the upsides and downsides that it brings. Yeah, sure. I mean, so just in terms of, you know, the, the structure of cloud money, if you kind of, um, at, at a very broad level, the book is looking at how 
uh, in global capitalist systems or uh, let's just call it corporate capitalism to refer to a type of a style of uh, capitalism that involves these very large players which dominate our economy, which de facto is the type of system we live in nowadays. In the corporate capitalist system, uh, we're just seeing a, a trend towards big finance fusing with big tech. And in terms of, you know, there's a, there's a kind of synergistic um a synergistic resonance between these types of institutions in a way. I mean, Amazon and these players cannot operate unless they are interlocked into huge transnational digital finance infrastructures. All right. So there's this natural kind of synergy between these uh, players. And one of the things I'm arguing is that the cash system, which is this our system of offline physical money issued by nation states, is being crushed not because ordinary people want this, but because it's required uh, in order for this sort of fusion between big finance and big tech to happen. Um, so this is one of the kind of the meta arguments I'm making, but there's a lot of, a lot of more specific types of um, critiques that come from that in terms of the dangers that emerge when the, we enter a cashless society, which is essentially a euphemism for a society where you have to rely upon large financial institutions to engage in any form of economic activity. Um, and yeah, the main sort of critiques that come out of that are, uh, you know, there's huge potential for surveillance. Uh, there's huge potential for censorship, forms of economic censorship. There's massive resilience problems in the monetary system that emerge when you have that situation. There's also massive exclusion problems that emerge. Um, and more generally, the cashless society facilitates centralization of power. Um, and this is sort of something people don't often actually think about. But uh, the cash system, the, the sort of physical cash system, actually, uh, in a way, uh, it promotes a kind of localization and decentralization in an economy, whereas digital money systems, at least mainstream digital money systems, are very, very much about um, creating very large centralized players. Okay, um, so in the book, is as well as in some of your past work, you talk about cashless societies, and, and you know, like you just did, warn about the dangers um, that it might bring. So, for most people who already have bank accounts, cell phones, and credit or debit cards, a cashless society is already a reality and a welcome one at that. So, in addition to the convenience and efficiency, um, everyone keeping their money in, in bank accounts increases the supply of loanable funds in an economy, lowering interest rates, making it easier for people to do things like buy houses, um, and enables corporations to invest more, enabling greater innovation, higher wages, higher living standards, and so on. So, I mean, due to fractional reserve banking, every dollar kept in cash res results in a 90 cent reduction in the supply of loanable funds. Um, so it, it also makes tax evasion infinitely more difficult. Um, so to me, the prospect of a, a cashless society, I mean, you, you pointed out some downsides, but I, I think there are, you know, an almost infinite list of, of upsides here. So can you tell us a bit about um, why you believe, what you believe some of the downsides, I mean, you mentioned centralization and, and um, you know, surveillance concerns, but why do you believe they outweigh all these tremendous benefits that we could get from, from a, a cashless society? Well, the first thing I'd say is those are not uncontroversial benefits. Those things you listed there, those are... I mean, from certain perspectives, you might consider those benefits. But the the main thing to firstly say is that when you say for many people they prefer a cashless society, that's simply not true. People 
like digital payments, but they don't. That does not mean they desire the absence of cash. So bear in mind the term cashless society does not refer to the presence of digital payment systems. It refers to the absence of cash. All right. So if we were using a transport metaphor, uh, which I often do, I talk about cash as the bicycle of payments. All right. And whereas your digital payment systems are very much like the private Uber of payments. Okay. So, um, you know, and this is, so when somebody says, you know, they like Uber, that doesn't mean they want the destruction of bike lanes in a city. All right. So you can totally have both forms of these. You can, you can have both forms of transport in a city. And similarly in a monetary system, you want both forms of money, right? They're as part of what creates a resilient monetary system. All right. So the, the, the this concept of cashless society first has to be understood as a type of, you know, if we're using that transport metaphor, it's a little bit like having a transport system without bicycles. Okay. And if you think, if, so if, if your concern is about how do you create resilient economies and how do you create economies that are resistant to shocks, you really want monetary systems that have multiple forms of payment and multiple forms of money. All right. Um, also, I mean, you said a whole bunch of stuff about loanable funds there, which is like kind of like a techie topic to get into, but really like <laughs> people holding cash is not going to reduce loanable funds. I mean, banks create money at will. It's not something that they require your cash for. So I think that's a bit of a, probably a slightly an argument I wouldn't go down. I wouldn't agree with. Um, but the main point is, is that like, it's, it's one thing to point out a bunch of uh, perceived benefits of digital payments, but that's very, very different to, uh, th th there's nothing, it's entirely possible to maintain a healthy digital payment system without destroying the cash system and actually having both simultaneously is, it's way better than and only being, being forced to use digital payment systems. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so I, I think we're we're sort of getting there. Um, just yeah, just wanted what, to... you laid out a whole a whole, a whole series of, of critiques and one in one and one question. So maybe you, you can unpack them and yeah, uh, um, at just one, and sort of yeah. So one thing I, I mean, I was I, I actually did want to want to ask um, about. I mean, you mentioned banks can create money. Um, you know, just out of out of thin air. So, I mean, as I understand it, you know, I, I haven't worked in the banking industry, but as I understand it, uh, for banks to be able to loan out money, they can they can loan out. Um, you know, I, I think in the United States, the reserve ratio is ten percent. So, if somebody donate, uh, sorry, somebody deposits a hundred dollars into uh, um, the the bank, they can then loan out ninety dollars of that. Um, and, and you know, in that in that way, no, that's not that's not how it works. Um, that's a kind of like an old, an older form of understanding what that would sometimes be called fractional reserve banking, but the actual way it would work is something far more like you can put in say a hundred dollars and then they can create a thousand dollars. All right. So in the book, I use the metaphor of a casino to illustrate this point. Um, so if you walk into a casino and you hand over state cash to the cashier at a, at a casino, they hand you casino chips, right? And you can use those chips within the confines of a casino, okay? Now, those are actually two forms of money that are in that particular setting. So you'll have state cash being held by the casino and then casino-issued chips being held by you, okay? So there are actually two forms of money there that are interlocked with each other. Now, the banking system is quite similar. Um, when you hand over state cash to a bank, 
They're not going to store it for you. They're taking ownership of it and simultaneously issuing you IOUs, which will be credited to your account, right? That will, that's what you will then call your money. But those are bank-issued IOUs. And they can actually issue far more of those IOUs than they have in state money, right? And that's what's called credit creation of money, all right? So it's not like they're dependent upon people depositing money in order to be able to loan out stuff, right? Because the act of banks loaning money is the act of banks issuing out short-term IOUs. Um, I can go more into that, but this the sort of um, that old model that you were using there is 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 not factually accurate. Okay, um, yeah, so that's that's good to know um, because I think you know, like me, a, a lot of people would have you know come up with the, the fractional reserve banking system, and and so that's that's sort of the, the the way we tend to think about you know just the the, the way banking work, and so um, you know traditionally more funds out of banks means, um, you know, the less money that can be loaned out. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the one, one, one more thing to say about that is that um, sometimes when people are, the, the key way to understand this is to move away from the idea that there's one form of money in society. So when you say, for example, the banks are loaning out money that was put in, you're thinking that there's one type of money, all right? So, so some money's gone in and the bank's lending it out. What's really actually happening is fine, money can go in and it can go into the reserves of banks, but then they can they will issue out and create new money in the process of quote unquote lending, all right? And that's quite a complex topic, but the important thing is that they're actually creating a secondary form of money. And what we call the cashless society is a society where we, where we become totally dependent upon that second form of bank-issued digital chips, as it were. All right. And that's what brings all the politics of cashless society. Okay. Um, and so I, I also wanted to ask about the other side of this, um, which is, you know, the consumer willingness. So you wrote an article for The Guardian a while back um, where you call the cashless society a con. Um, so there, there's a couple of arguments I, I wanted to get your response to as well. So you wrote that financial institutions, likewise, are trying to nudge us towards a cashless society and digital banking. The true motive is corporate profit. Payments companies such as Visa and MasterCard want to increase the volume of digital payments services they sell, while banks want to cut costs. The nudge requires two parts. Firstly, they must increase the convenience of cash, ATMs, and branches. Secondly, they must vigorously promote the alternative. Um, and then you know you go on to discuss how this is driven by corporate profit. So I think this this line of reasoning, um, you know, sort of might might by, bypass the point in the sense that all corporate actions are, are driven by corporate profit. But that doesn't mean that it, it comes at the expense of consumers necessarily. So for example, when Amazon added one day shipping, they made a lot of profit, but consumers also benefited tremendously. So you, you then went on to follow that argument with nobody was on the streets shouting for digital payments 20 years ago, but increasingly it seems obvious that it's natural and should take over. So by the same logic, I mean, nobody was on the streets shouting for the internet or cell phones or rideshare and food delivery services either. I mean, it's been natural for the past 200 years that technology will improve and make our lives easier and more convenient and that all aspects of daily life will sort of mold around these advancements like they did with cell phones and the internet. So exactly what direction that advancement will take, though, um, no, nobody really knows. So I, I wanted to get your your response. Sure. I mean, bear in mind, you've got to put those articles in context, all right, and what I'm writing in context. Now, with the context of those pieces is to cut against the inauthentic narrative told about why cashless society happens, all right? So the, the classic um, mainstream, let's say, let's say this is the very standard narrative, is this idea that it's always from the bottom up. Now, there's actually a problem in economics language more generally, well, while nuanced economists obviously know that markets are giant interdependent meshes that have very 
that have many different players in them with different levels of power. In the sort of popular use of economics language in public, it's often imagined that the sort of everyday quote unquote consumer, aka a small person, a sort of a sort of like a small scale player in an economy, is the one with agency. All right. So if we're imagining, for example, a giant uh, an economic system as a giant interdependent mesh of people who depend upon each other. The sort of imagery generated by much economics language is sort of tries to place the ordinary person as the one where the agency resides. Okay, so they'll say, for example, you'll see articles that say things like consumers uh, switch to digital payment, or consumers demand digital payment, or these types of things, or consumers turn towards digital payment. The implicit message in most message, most of this type of public. Um, discourse around cashless society always makes out that somehow it's been driven by the ordinary person. Now, I'm not saying there's not an aspect of that in markets, right? But the hidden part of that is that actually there's many of these top-down pushes against the cash system. And there's also a problem in economics language, which the term demand in economics is often used to refer to the action of somebody who goes out and, and gets something, right? So you see a person starting to use some digital payments app, and you'll say consumers are demanding digital payment. And demand in the English language also sort of carries with it this implicit idea of desire, all right? This idea that, well, people must desire this thing. But if you actually look at how these processes work, often what's happening is large oligopoly players will all pull in a particular, particular direction at the same time. And they will essentially recalibrate the economy as they do that. And they'll create, they'll create these situations where it becomes harder and harder for people to go against that, all right? So it's true you'll have some people who perceive themselves as desiring this thing. So there'll be certain types of early adopters, certain types of people who'd be like, oh, I actually like this stuff, this stuff. But for most people, what's going to actually happen is that you'll slowly just find yourself doing it because what's actually happening is that if you don't do it, you will slowly get rejected from the economic network, all right? This is very easy to see in places like Sweden, for example, where this has happened. If you try to go against the grain of digital payments in Sweden, you basically get, you basically can't transact. Okay, so now, now the reason why I make the, I, I say these things is I'm. T this is how capitalist systems work. All right, capitalist systems are about accumulation of profit and maximization of profit. All right, and at the scale of global capitalism we're operating right now, it does. It's really largely irrelevant what individual people often think about something. All right, the reason why we move towards digital payment is they accelerate economic. They accelerate scale, speed, and complexity, right? Which is something that corporations do love, right? Now, if you are a person who says, "I actually uh, those those values don't resonate with me," I actually want to keep hold of analog forms. I, I don't want to be dependent upon large corporations. Often, you still will be pushed into that situation because that's what that's what the whole economy is being recalibrated like that. I'm not fully answering your question here, but the point of those articles was often just to actually just cut through this sort of um, euphemistic narrative we get. And I do understand, I can, I can tell by your questions that you kind of have a, probably what we call a sort of free market orientation, but I don't, right? I come from a kind of economic anthropology, politics way of analyzing economies. So I'm looking for like the power and who has power. Yeah, um, but I mean, by the by the same token, right? Um, in you, you you talk about how in in a global capitalist market, the the the, the goal is sort of to to maximize profit, um, but at the same time, the the maximization of profit can only occur when you maximize value for the consumers. Um, so I, I, I sure, mean, I, I mean, that's I, I I know what I know what what like 
economic position you're coming from. And I understand the arguments and I know these arguments. Um, and we could debate this point, but in, for example, libertarian philosophy, which sounds a little bit like what you're um, channeling to some extent, that's a big assumption. It's simply assumed that when a market player is dominating and making huge amounts of profit, it's because people desire that situation. Whereas what I'm saying is that actually, in reality, fine, maybe that happens sometimes, right? But I'm like, if you if you sort of step away from the kind of ideological um, commitment to believing that large corporations are large because they provide something that people people want. Um, you start, and you start to see them as political players who are able to alter markets and use their power to achieve things, um, it starts to become apparent that, okay, fine, there might be aspects of these systems that we appreciate, right? And perhaps we do gain certain things, but often we don't have nearly as much agency as being, as being claimed. And often we're simultaneously losing things as well, all right? For example, you can easily tell this right now in... Uh, the digital world, everyone, we live under this ideology that more and more digital technology is always better and that more speed, scale and complexity is always better. And yet the levels of mental health um, issues have gone up exponentially, right? You're having huge problems that are emerging from these digital technologies and people are essentially addicted to them, right? This is like very well known and you probably would know this yourself or most people would know this from the experience they have when these technologies are taken away from them. It's not the experience of, it's essentially the experience of an addict who is losing something, all right? And this, this is what we are kind of dealing with in our current moment is this idea that, you know, fine, we're getting forms of convenience, but we're simultaneously being captured by systems that often will exploit our short-term interests to the detriment of our long-term well-being. And also simultaneously often eroding our freedoms, right? Um, so this is, this is, this is interestingly one of the reasons why actually there are parts of the libertarian community who are very, very pro-cash. Um, yeah, so um, I, th I think that brings me um, quite quite neatly to the, the next part that I wanted to discuss, um, you know, which once again, um, I, I think is, is very, very, is viewed very favorably within the sort of libertarian community, um, which is cryptocurrencies. So um, in the book, you, you discuss cryptocurrency in an interestingly titled chapter called uh, Paranormalist's Guide to, to the Specter of Bitcoin. So I, I think a lot of the, the downsides you mentioned of a cashless society, um, you know, the surveillance, um, centralization, um, all, all, all of those points that you mentioned, um, you know, sort of are circumvented by cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin, which aren't centralized, which can't be surveilled, which are perfectly secure, those sorts of things. So for our audience that isn't familiar, can you tell us a bit about how you conceptualize um, Bitcoin as as sort of a a, um, a way around the the cashless societies where we can we can maintain the benefits of cash without holding physical cash um, and um, you know the role that you think it might play in the future of our monetary system. Yeah, sure. Bear in mind, I don't argue that it does solve the problems. Um, I was involved in the early Bitcoin community, uh, so I have quite a lot of experience with the actual sort of you know um, practicalities of Bitcoin, and you know I, I even used to try to use it. For exchange, which is actually quite rare, because um, many people who hold Bitcoin will um, perceive it as an investment asset that they buy and sell for money rather than being a form of quote unquote money in itself. Um, so, but and certainly the uh, the development of the components that came together to form Bitcoin was spearheaded in the 1990s by the cypherpunk uh, community. 
which is, you know, this community was looking at, you know, they were looking forward in time and saying, if we do enter a hypothetical cashless society, uh, we're going to have huge problems of corporate and state surveillance. All right. And those things obviously work together because corporate surveillance then often is what enables states to to engage in surveillance too. All right. So they were looking forward and saying this would be a big problem and we need to form some kind of alternative, quote unquote, digital cash in that future to act as a kind of countervailing force. So this is what the kind of the, the sort of uh, intuition behind uh, Bitcoin was, or at least the components that went into making Bitcoin. And then Bitcoin came out in 2008, or at least the sort of design for it did. And really what Bitcoin is, is a, I, I mean, I would describe it as a, as a highly ingenious, um, almost quite beautiful technological platform that's used to implement a very crude token or uh, and this is this is the part of the, the problem that Bitcoin has is that actually the the technology is actually very is authentically amazing, but the token that was implemented upon using that um, uh, technology is extremely crude. Um, really, what it is is a kind of uh, if I was putting it in kind of like metaphorical terms, I could say like limited edition digital medallions. Or limited edition digital digital collectibles that are branded as money. All right, um, it's quite useful to think about a medallion actually, because like you know, if you if, I don't know if you can picture these like medallions, but they're these sort of you know circular objects with uh, inscriptions on them, and they kind of like look like money, but they're not really money. Actually, they will have prices on them. All right, so if you walk into like an antique store and you see like a medallion, that's what it is, right? This is kind of like. It looks like a money a form of money, but it's actually a kind of collectible object. And Bitcoin is actually quite similar, albeit in digital form. There are these sort of like digital objects that have prices on a speculative market. Um, and you can use them for exchange, but you use them for exchange via a process called counter trade. And counter trade is basically um, the process by which you will uh, swap uh, money priced objects Um this is quite a, a kind of a complicated topic, but um, well, let me use an example of a, of a medallion that you buy in an antiques shop, for example. Like imagine it costs like $50, right? And you've got this $50 medallion. And then you've got a mate who has a, a jacket that costs like $100. So let's say you've got two, two of these medallions and you have a mate that has like a, a, a jacket that costs 100. And you say, hey, can I give you these two medallions for that one jacket? Now, what you're actually doing in that situation is called counter trade. You're taking the monetary prices of two different objects and using it to calculate a ratio, an exchange ratio between them. All right. Um, what's actually happening is there's two separate monetary transactions that are being cleared against each other. All right. Um, and so this is what's called this is called counter trade. You can do it with any any object in the market. You can do it with Bitcoin too. And Bitcoin is actually very, very easy and effective at doing counter trade with, right? So this leads to this impression that Bitcoin is a monetary system because it's highly swappable or highly counter tradable. Um, so I'm gonna, oh, this is a very long answer, sorry. Uh, but basically Bitcoin's, I, I guess, like I would view it as a monetary parasite. It's a kind of like a, a, a very ingenious system that kind of like parasites upon the existing monetary system. I can go into that more if you'd like me to. 
Um, no, I think that was that was quite um, you know. Thank you for first of all for the the detailed response. Um, I think that was that was necessary here um, because it was quite a, a detailed topic, and, and I mean I don't think a, a short answer would have would have really done it justice. Um, but yeah, I think that that really, um, especially your your explanation of the counter trade system, um, that that really yeah. makes it clear. Um, one last thing I'll say is that actually you know people think that's a critique. You know, people with Bitcoins often say, oh, if you, you call it that, that's a critique. I, was, I don't see it as a critique at all. I think it's actually quite useful to have something that's highly counter-tradable. What's the, what they get, get upset by is that is um, my suggestion that it won't destroy the US dollar system. All right. Actually, the Bitcoin system relies upon being priced in a monetary system before it actually works. So, uh, But I think it's very, very useful if you are, for example, a political dissident and you are uh, being excluded from the normal banking sector, you can use these digital objects for exchange. And it's, that's actually a very useful feature of the system. It's just not going to replace the US dollar system. So do you think there are any benefits um, of cash that aren't replaced by, by cryptocurrencies going forward? Yeah, I mean, the cash system is far more resilient and stable for most people. Bear in mind, if you're, if you're like a small business owner or a family with low amounts of savings, um, you don't want to be subject to the the speculative swings of the crypto markets. I mean, imagine having your nervous system plugged into 40% increases and decreases in the asset prices and in the crypto markets. If you if you have very low amounts of savings, you really don't want to be subject to that kind of almost like terrorism of speculative markets. All right. For most people, that's just un, unheard of, right? They, they don't want their savings in something like that. All right. Um, and especially if you're trying to do exchange or you're trying to accept it as a business or something like that, it's just, it's just, a, it's just a nightmare, that volatility. Whereas the cash system doesn't require accounts. It's resilient, it's simple. As I said, it's like the public bicycle system of payments. So for many people, the cash system remains de facto the most important form, form of payment. And actually across the world, cash remains the most dominant form of payment, right? It's just that ideologically, the, the message has turned against it, okay? Um, but I think um, the, I mean, thinking about cash as the public bicycle system of payments really helps you to sort of see the what's at stake there because the, the way the way it's often presented as being as, as the horse cart of payments, right? But that's that's a really partial and short short sighted kind of message because the cash system provides a lot of resilience to economies and also a lot of inclusion for people who don't either don't like the banking sector or can't get accepted by the banking sector sector. Okay, well, those are all the questions I, I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Brett. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.